Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Seen It All. We break down this week's biggest movie and TV news, Killers of the Flower Moon Review. Box office for Taylor Swift, the era is the movie. She smashes some box office records. Loki episode three review and breakdown. And the fall of House of Usher review, new Netflix series review. That's all, all coming up on this week's episode. The first topic I want to do today is my Killers of the Flower Moon review. So I was super, I was so excited to see this movie. It premiered back at the Cannes Film Festival, I think in May-ish. For like, they got the biggest positive reaction. It had like a 20-minute standing ovation. Everybody was raving at it. And they continued those rave reviews really for the rest of its entire ad campaign. And the ad campaign, the trailers have been excellent for this film. And I went in with really high expectations, despite the trepidations. My, 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 um... I felt a little trepidatious about the three hour and 26 minute runtime. I like to reserve that type of runtime only to James Cameron's on Avatar films. Please just leave it for him. But before I get to my reaction for the film itself, I want to talk about how my experience watching the movie, watching that film was one of the worst movie experiences I've ever had going to the movie theater. And it wasn't because of the movie theater itself this time. Um, the people behind me, the people behind me in this movie theater, Movie starts, and I hear them pulling out this big bag of something, crinkling around, and they have, I think it is it was pecans is what they had, some coated pecans, something like that, because they were cracking them, popping them in their mouth, and they are throwing them on the ground. So the first 40 minutes of the movie, I just hear, ding, 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 and they slide them away, throw more, ding, ding, and I asked them to stop. I was like, can you please stop throwing it? So I went and got a movie theater employee, after they didn't listen to me, they just ignored me, they got them to finally stop, and then they started making weird noises, like burps really loudly. It was just so weird. And then I was walking out of the movie theater, and they revved their engine at me. So it was just, like, insanity. And for the first, like, 30, 45 minutes, I really just could not focus because every time I just kept hearing that tick. And that's one of those things that really bothers me. So the first 40 minutes of this movie were just not it. I kind of was a blur for me. I mean, I understand the setup and stuff like that, but I was so angry at them. I was so mad. I'm just so sick and tired of people who go to the movies and act like, they're still in the comfort of their own home. You don't have to get this. You don't have. You don't get to ruin the experience for others. That's just so freaking selfish. I love how we're watching a movie about selfish people, and you like don't get the memo about that. Like, don't watch the movie. Also, movie theater employees—they were pushing the the people that were that were throwing the nuts on the ground. They pushed them like back behind the seats in front of them, so it was even harder to clean up for the movie theater employees. There were just nuts everywhere, and I was there were shells everywhere. I was so angry. But that's for the movie. That's up for my mini rant. But I'm just so sad about the state of the people that go to movie theaters and just like just have self-respect these are people too don't interrupt these other people's movie going experiences it's just so selfish of you but what did i think of the film itself i thought it was deeply flawed with some shiny bits to it and i respect what it was trying to go for but this was not my movie at all and i really did not feel the tension that i was hoping for and especially like this big murder mystery american grand epic i didn't feel the tension that i needed to and it might have been because i was zoned out the first four minutes but i think more over all the structure of the story just wasn't it for me I felt the major issue with this film was having main characters be Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, both of who do an amazing job. We'll talk about it in a minute, but those are just two really evil people that they reveal to be evil right in the beginning of the story. And I didn't realize that going in so f I didn't realize that going in they were kind of evil. I mean, everybody's kind of evil in this movie, except for a few characters, but I didn't realize like, oh, dang, we have to follow this person for three hours and 26 minutes. I think the main character should have been the, o the I think it's o the Osage people. The Osage tribe members and the main character of the movie should have been Molly or who's Lily Gladstone's character, who's the wife of Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest. It should have been her despite her constant diabetes and her illness in there. She should have been the main character. They could have structured a way where she was more of a protagonist. They really they reveal who's doing the murders of the in, of the Indians early on. You know, it's white men, but the reveal of who it was caught me off guard. Because I didn't know the story in real life. But the way they did it cut the, out of the tension of the film entirely. I really thought, I don't know. 
I just I didn't like the way it was set up at all. Uh, the only times I really felt the tension was when Brendan Bren Fraser showed up as a lawyer, and we got some courtroom scenes that were very intense, along with Jesse Plemons as like the FBI investigator. Those two, they brought the tension. I was like, oh, I'm getting in this. Oh, and the explosion scene that you see in the trailer. That scene gave me chills when the windows blew out and you see the wreckage. Oh, it was so good. That's probably the favorite scene in the movie. Just I felt I really felt the weight of what was going on in that scene. I won't. Well, more than that, I, I felt like the book that uh, this film is based off a book. I felt like the book probably did this this storyline a lot more justice than this film ever could. Even though it's three hours and 26 minutes, I feel like the book probably told it way better. First of all, the film is just way too long. As I said, it's three hours and 26 minutes. I know a lot of people don't say the runtime's irrelevant now that we have miniseries. Like, if you can binge watch that, I'm, trying, I'm just saying three, hour, three and a half hours sitting in one location, not being able to get up. I mean, get up and go to the bathroom, but no intermission, nothing like that. I feel like that's just not fair to consumers honestly and i mean it's art and you can do that but the only films i would relegate that to are avatar i just don't think there's many stories that would relegate that long of a runtime even avatar is filler scenes i just don't think there's many films that need that long of a runtime and it for sure did not need that here i was watching where i i felt like i could have edited down this way better there, like, there was 30 seconds where we just watched the side character dance and i it taught us nothing and i was like well, maybe we could make this like a five second shot I'm just really disappointed in the overall writing of this movie, and it made me, it really didn't help, like, help me back from relating to the emotions on screen that these characters were feeling, especially because most of them were downright evil, so that didn't help me relate to them, and the movie, I feel like the movie was, like, trying to get me to root for them at some parts, at least, I'm, you know, I don't want to give anything away for it, but the only character I was rooting for was Lily Gladstone's character, who plays Molly, which I think, well, she got relegated a lot to the sidelines because of her diabetes, which I think really weakened her chances of the Oscar, I feel like she could have, if she had more to do. But the emotional, the emotional aspects she does in this movie were just absolutely incredible. And even though I didn't really fully feel the emotion from the writing itself, I felt it from the acting between Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. Well, excuse me, Lily Gladstone. You really feel it from there. I think she should have been the main character of this film, or at least spearheaded more of the action. The performance, though, from every single one of the cast members were just breathtaking. It was just like Martin Scorsese. He can direct the heck out of a movie. Maybe he can't write this one that well, but he is an auteur. He's one of the best to ever do it. And that's why I was so excited for this film. But he's still, he's just an amazing director. And he really knows how to get the best performances of the actors. And it also helps when they're Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio had a scene towards the end of the film that took my breath away. His teeth do a lot of the acting and so does his accent. But let's let's just say there was, there was some scenes towards the end of this film. And I was like, wow, really took my breath away. Even though I wasn't particularly rooting for Leonardo DiCaprio, he took my breath away. Lily Gladstone, as I said, really brought the emotion that this film needed. But she felt underutilized, as I said. Robert De Niro legend and he really gets a juicy role here i think he was probably outside of lily gladstone he was my favorite part of the film um i mean you already see him see him saying amazing lines in the trailer like um he's you're are you praying for a miracle and make all this go away you know those don't happen anymore that was great and you really feel see the layers underneath him and he's a lot more complex than you might think in the original it's just oh he's so good so good along with brendan frazier and jesse Plemons, as i said and there's one surprise like incredible actor that well known everybody's going to recognize him that shows up in the third act that caught me by surprise they all did an excellent job and those were probably the big announcements. i think the osage people themselves feel conflicted about the conflicted about this movie from what i've heard uh, be, martin scorsese he said he reworked the film after the first draft because they felt were focusing on all the white points of the view and reworked it but that's essentially what we still got here, so I don't really understand the reworking. I really just feel like this film had been cut down. I really feel like if this film had been cut down a bit and had the main focus be on the Osage people themselves and the fear behind that and the solving of those murders with Leonardo DiCaprio and with Leo and versus having Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro be the main characters, we would have had something much better here. Also, I have to mention that I loved 
the absolute last scene between Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. And it was just beautiful and it was full of emotion. I really felt it. I was really locked into what they were saying. But the actual ending of the film, I hated. And I can't get into why without giving spoilers, but I really didn't like having it one, it like wrapped up our main character storylines in a three hour and 26 minute film. And it just wrapped it up in one bit. And I just, I feel like if we're going to three hours, 26 minutes, we're going to have time to fall in with these characters, follow with these characters, see their story. I want to see like the full complete ending. And I don't feel like we got that. It felt like it was a cop out or I don't know what it was, but I'm like, if I've seen this long, you got to give me a satisfying conclusion. I didn't feel like they gave it to me. So yeah, I did not love this film. I like, I was hoping to, I didn't, can't even say I overall liked it. There were moments, the performances, they're going to win. This is going to win Oscars for the performances. And I would fully support that. I, I was really looking forward for a great three-hour epic, and I really did not get what I wanted. Yes, my terrible movie-going experience may have affected my views for the first 40 minutes or so, but I mean, that's that's like 20% of the whole movie. But I just didn't end up connecting to the, these characters and the motion like I hoped I would have. It just it just didn't work out. As for other people's reactions, though, I think it has a 93% in Rotten Tomatoes. People are loving this film, and I'm really glad that so many people are loving this, specifically critics so far, and I'm, I really wish I was among them, because I really was hoping for to love this movie. Um, it has a 30 million projected opening, which is good considering this was never meant to play in theaters, but it was supposed to be an Apple TV plus exclusive film, but they got smart and decided it should have a theatrical release first, which is what a lot of these studios should be doing. Netflix, I'm looking at you. You should be doing that. But that still isn't great when you look at the $200 million budget for Killers of the Flower Moon. Where did that money go? Did it did it just go right into the pockets of Martin Scorsese? Martin, why did I say his name like that? Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. I think it just went all into their pockets because, I mean, it's, it, this should not have been that expensive of a film to make. It's mostly set in one town and some court scenes. So I don't know where all that money went. Some bad, some bad accounting there, if you ask me. Some money laundering going on with the production of this film. I'm like, hey, you go, Martin. You go, Leo. Get all this money from Apple. They got tons of it. So, I mean, I support them. So that's how Killers of Flower Moon is expected to do. It's an Oscar favorite right now, and I'm curious how general audiences are going to react to this film because I didn't overall enjoy it, my time on this film, after all is said and done, but I can still respect it for what it's attempting to do. But I'm curious how general moving going public is going to react. I'm very excited to see that cinema score come out and see if it causes any controversy. Who knows? Who knows? But Killers of the Flower Moon, I hope everybody else. As for the box office of this past weekend, we got to talk about Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. So the weekend projections projections were all over the place for this film, with people like myself going on to predict that it would be the biggest opening of the year above Barbie, and I think I said it would open around $160 million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was a little off. I um, did not, shouldn't, thank God I did not bet on this. So the film actually came in with around $93 million opening. Joker had the record for biggest October opening ever at $96.2 million. And we were all expecting it to beat that, but it didn't hold, it still holds the record. Joker is still the crown right here. But, but this opening already makes it the biggest concert film of all time. And I think it was Justin Bieber's concert film about 10 years ago. That film, that film had like a 98, something around there, high 90s total domestic run. So it's beat that. It, it's playing right now and it's already beat that. Um, the worldwide, the film looks to have 130 million opening weekend. This is something on a superhero level. I also have to say that this is a bigger opening weekend than all of the DC's films this year, which I think is pretty hilarious. This opening is actually bigger than Blue Beetle's entire run in theaters, which I think just recently finished at, at the, as the lowest grossing DCU film with around 128 million. But back to so pre-sale figures passed 100 million a few days ago, and I thought that was the domestic opening weekend number. I thought that was just referring to domestic and the first opening weekend, but that was total pre-sales worldwide. 
over the entire span of the weeks that I was out. So that didn't help with my prediction at all and definitely threw off everybody, I think. But it also signals that more than 60% of tickets purchased were purchased ahead of time like concerts are now. And I find that that really interesting versus films, which still have a lot of walk-up business day of. Taylor Swift also wasn't distributed by a traditional Hollywood studio. Instead, she went straight to AMC theaters, which most definitely pissed off the studios who they aren't making money right now with the actors on strike and they got screwed out of this. They screwed out, got screwed out of a lot of money and it kind of makes me happy. I'm like, hmm, they're not paying their people. They're getting punished for it. But also all the top theaters were AMC because Swifties thought that they could only see her or at least that's where the pre-sales opened up for. And AMC went all out for Taylor with all their merchandising, advertising. And at my local AMC theater, was it was full of staff members. I haven't seen it in a long time. And I'm like, oh, fun, they're playing all these people. And they look having a fun time. And I'm like, oh, movies are fun whenever they're packed. My theater also doesn't do a ticket check before you walk in the theater area. Like, you know, how they like rip off your ticket and make sure you can't like go into the movie theater without it first. But they did this weekend and they actually used the ticket booths outside for once. We have ticket booths outside here down in Alabama. And that, that was, it made me happy that they were using them again. I hope they can keep it up. I don't think they will, especially with how packed the theater was. It felt like Barbie and Oppenheimer again with how many people were there. It was just a really fun time at the movies. And I really enjoyed the sold out showings because you didn't just feel the air in the room. You could feel that it's good vibes, man. It was good vibes. It was good for the soul to be in that movie theater. Also, that article that Deadline put out saying that Taylor Swift had more sold out showings than Barbie and No Way Home also didn't help with the opening weekend projections. So everything was up in the air. It really threw everything for a loop. I think the signals a rebirth in concert films. We already know that Beyonce is doing one in, I think, December 1st. And I think other other artists are going to jump on the trend. I could totally see The Weeknd and Ariana Grande, Olivia Rodrigo doing the same thing. I'll be there day one for all those artists. Maybe not Ariana Grande, but I'll be there for Weeknd and Olivia Rodrigo. But none of them are going to have the same success that Taylor Swift is having right now. She's up there with Michael Jackson right now at the peak of his fandom. She's dominating the world. And I don't know if she's ever going to be this high again, but she's making the most of it right now with all the money she is bringing in. The Eras Tour, I think, will be playing the next three weekends, only on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I think that's a brilliant, pur- brilliant and pur- purposeful, so you keep the theater somewhat packed and make it more of a concert experience. If the theater only had like 10 people in it, the experience would be much less. Oh, and before I talk about the other films, <clears throat> other films' performance this past weekend, I have to mention that Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour, got, a, got the coveted A-plus cinema score. It is very rare for films to achieve this, but it shows that Swifties are loving what they're getting and having a great time doing so. I had a great time seeing this. Taylor Swift is throwing a party right now and spending her time with Travis Kelsey on SNL, apparently. So she's living the high life, and so is Travis Kelsey. And she's probably in Deadpool 3. Who knows? Living the high life. But how did the arrival of the biggest pop star in years affect other films in the marketplace? I thought everything else was going to drop drop like a rock. It didn't, surprisingly. Taylor Swift only took about 70% of the total movie marketplace money, and I thought it would be in the 80s or even even close to the 90s. The main film we have to talk about is The Exorcist Believer, which fell 58% in its second week into an 11 million performance, and it has now passed 45 million domestic. Again, make sure to check out my breakdown of The Exorcist Believer's performance on last week's episode. It's doing well relative to its budget, but Universal had to pay $400 million to the rights of the trilogy. So this film was not going to make money for Universal. It's going to hit PVOD, where you can buy it for 25 rip for 20 something like that. Universal sets theirs up weird. Um, I think it's going to hit next Tuesday, or maybe it's already out. Who knows? So Universal is hoping for a rebound here. But this film does not have legs, and I don't think it'll ever pass the Century Mark Worldwide. Really bad performance here, and some really bad decision-making on display. And lastly, I do have to mention that Paw Patrol only fell 38% this past weekend to $7 million, and Saw X only fell 27% to around $6 million. These films are the real winners of that end of September when we had like four movies come out. You had Creator, Saw X, Paw Patrol, and Dumb Money, and it was so stupid that they are all coming out the same week. But Saw X, 
Paw Patrol have triumphed. They are both making so much money for the studio, and they're just they're making so much more money than I ever thought possible for Saw X and Paw Patrol. And it makes me sad because Creator is making. Now I got to review The Fall of the House of Usher, very long title, which is a new Netflix horror show out from Mike Flanagan. Surface thoughts before I delve into spoilers. I thoroughly enjoyed this series, and I binged it within three days. Would have been a lot faster if I wasn't so busy, but I really enjoyed what Mike Flanagan had to say about the healthcare industry. As someone who works at a local health food store, and we see a lot of people that are trying to leave that system, the healthcare system, and come in there, I really felt like I could relate to what he was saying. I'm like, I deal with this firsthand. I mean, I don't, not firsthand. I, I deal with this, like, experience of trying to get people off the healthcare system. I really love what we had to say. The kills, they are really inventive, and the mystery of what is going on is really well put together. Each of the characters really make their mark. They each get about one episode to shine, and they are memorable in the sense of you having memorable characters in a murder mystery type movie. I really felt that sense right there. Also, casting Carla Gugino, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce her name, as the villain of the whole piece slash the killer. It was so inventive, and I really loved the role she had to play without delving into spores. I'm a huge fan of Mike Flanagan's Netflix work. My favorite has to be Midnight Mass, followed by Haunted of Bly Manor and Haunting of Hill House. Fall of the House of Usher, I would have to put at the bottom of that list, which does not make it bad, but I just didn't feel the same emotional connection to those characters in Usher as I did to the characters in those other shows. The endings of Midnight Mass and Bly Manor, they really got me emotionally. I was hit I was hit really hard by the end of those shows. When, when they st- everybody started dying and everybody had tragic endings, I was like, I can't. This is making me so sad. But I have to say, out of all these shows, this one is by far the scariest and the goriest. The total body count may be higher in Midnight Mass, but the kills here are way more inventive than on that show. Trust me. Mike Flanagan said, I'm going to kill people any way I want to with Carl Gugino by my side. But now I want to delve into spoilers. So if you haven't checked out the show on Netflix yet, I wouldn't suggest, I would suggest checking out now because I I want to get in the spoilers. So make sure to check it out. It's on Netflix right now. So I first want to get into one of my dislikes of the show. And that has something to do with the show, the show at the, starting the show at the end with Roderick telling the lawyer, Roderick's the dad of the family, telling the lawyer his confession and working our way back up to the present. I do like that framing device because it feels a lot more like an Edgar Allan Poe story that way. We're going to talk about all the Edgar Allan Poe influences here in a minute but the one thing i don't like is that they reveal that all of his children are dead at the beginning of the show i feel like they took a lot of took out a lot of suspense i had when i already knew they were going to die and i also knew the order based on how they were following them in the episodes i'm like oh i see the title for that one i don't know who's dying this one the only one that i didn't know was going to die was his granddaughter lenore and that's where i felt the most suspense was for those last few scenes with her because i had no idea what was going to happen the conversation she had with carlo gino was like flawless that stuff they said at the end perfect but that is probably my only major flaw with the show, but other than that, I thought it was a great horror gothic tale. So I thought I would go through each of the characters because he frames episodes two through seven by following each of one of one of the six Roderick's children. So this is specifically kind of what Mike Flanagan did regarding following each of the five kids and the five first five episodes of Haunting a Hill House. I love how that was set up, and I feel like they did a great job setting that up here. I think the youngest kid was named Prospero. That's how I pronounce it. Prospero is the youngest, and they all think he's talking to the feds about their company, but Fred. But Freddy, no. Oh, I'm confusing them. Freddy is the firstborn. Prospero is the youngest. Prospero decides to go through basically an, an orgy. And he just stupidly does not check the water tanks of an abandoned science lab. And he pours acid on everyone in the room. This was like the first kill of the series. And it caught me so off guard. It was so crazy to see. Not too much character development with him. Other than he's a whiny little kid that only dream about sex. So, I mean, his kill was gruesome. And I was like, wow. We're throwing in here. We're going more than we ever gone before. Next up, we had Camille, who's played by Mike Flanagan's wife, Kate Siegel. I love that she's in all of his shows because she always rocks her part. 
Here she plays a young plays a woman who helped frame the narratives for the family. She's like the PR lady. But she goes to investigate her sister's testing of animals. We never really see why Camille hates Vic so much. Maybe I just missed it, but I wonder what they did to each other. But Camille here, she gets mauled. And I think the scariest scene of the show, when she brings her camera up to film Carla Gugino's character, but she was actually the monkey that that then kills Camille. Oh, it got me. It got me good. Camille is an odd character, especially with her two assistants. I kind of wish she stayed around longer than some of the others because I felt like she had more flair to her. And I was like, mm, that's a that's a murder mystery suspect right there. And I really I really like that setup. I just think back to like Clue and stuff like that. And Camille really had that look for her. Then we had Napoleon, who I really despised the most. I did not like his lazy character one bit. But I think that Carla Gugino killed the cat. I think that Carla Gugino, she definitely killed that cat and just made him think he did it because of all the drugs he was on. I hate when horror characters are on drugs, so everyone can use that as a justification for why they're going insane or why they're seeing all this crap. I'm like, get off the drugs. This is your fault. We need to get back to it. Stop using that justification. He's telling the truth. But he then goes crazy with this cat attacking him, which is a reference to Edgar Allan Poe's work. It's like a black cat dies and comes to attack. I don't know. I, I have vague memories of that. I knew I knew Edgar Allan Poe did something with that. And eventually, he takes Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, and starts smashing it through the, through the uh, walls of his apartment until... He falls off the balcony by accident. The cat basically killed him. So Carla Gugino killed him through his own fall. And I'm good riddance. He should have been the first one to die. Vicky, I thought outside of Camille, Vicky was the most interesting of the children with her heart, her heart like beat technology and her girlfriend and her forging the signatures for her girlfriend, just like what happened back in the 70s to Roderick. There was nice parallels here. But Vicky has the best fight scene and kills her girlfriend before killing herself in front of her dad. The least grotesque of the death scenes like the least like gross of all of them but it honestly felt the most powerful and the ticking noises she kept hearing before it was real to be her girlfriend's dead corpse oh it was so cool i was like wow we're really going here. and he had total eclipse of the heart plane right before she killed her girlfriend oh oh it was just going off the charts and i really love this one i feel like had the most commentary based on like them rushing project production and like testing on people who shouldn't be tested on i just love the commentary they had in the healthcare industry i feel like it was really needed as for Tamer Lane, I think that's how you pronounce her name. I think her along with Napoleon were my least favorites, so I don't have a ton to say about her other than her going crazy while being filmed and then chucking the mic at her dad's wife was so funny. <laughs> look, I was like, oh my god, you could have killed her with that. She just had a bruise on her head. I was like, that could have killed her. But her death was one of the best. With the mirror shattering and killing her, she fell back onto her bed. Awesome way to go out for what I thought was one of the dull kids. Not all the six kids could be out standouts, but uh, I really loved her death scene. Frederick, the last, and I would say the most evil of his kids, because he got crazy on coke and basically tortured his wife for lying about going to Prospera's orgy, and he was just evil. He was the firstborn and was completely corrupted by money, and I, I really, the conversation that Roderick had with his dead first wife about how he took the kids away from her with money and basically turned them evil, and I was like, that is powerful stuff and really sad, and I think Roderick realized that, and he really regrets it. He was the firstborn and completely corrupted by money said, and at the end, Carla Gugino says that his death would have been easy if it wasn't for what he did to his wife. And then his death probably took the longest for him to die while he was paralyzed as the thing swung back and forth and slowly cut open his belly. Ooh, it was brutal. It was brutal. So that's it of the kids. And Lenora also dies, but goes in a happy way with, uh, but you can see that Carla Gugino, she doesn't like hurting good people and she didn't want to, she just put Lenora out. She didn't like slash her and make her suffer like she did everybody else. So what is the reason for all this happening? It is revealed on the night of the New Year's of 1980 that Madeline and Roderick, the two heads of the family, brother and sister, the twins, killed the head of Fortunata and made a deal with Carlo Gugino for all of the wealth that they could desire in return for the bloodline ending with Roderick. I think Roderick wasn't sure of the deal, but I think Madeline knew for sure what they were getting into. 
And I think that's also leads to why she never had kids. Because when Roderick dies, they all bite in the bullet. And also why she's still investigating into the AI stuff, trying to preserve her immortality. She 100% believed in that was coming. So Carla Gugino is the Raven. I didn't make the connection of her granddaughter being Lenore until Roderick started to say the Raven poem out loud. I was like, oh, that's what that is. That's Wow, I didn't realize that. But this leads to Madeline being mercy killed by Roderick. But not exactly. She, he thought he knocked her out, cut her eyeballs out, gave her a, like a send off into the afterlife. But he didn't kill her. And you hear banging at the start of the series while they're interviewing him from the basement. He's like, oh, this is Madeline. And you kind of forget about the banging. I was like, are someone going to check on her? Until at the very end of the season, she comes back out of the basement to kill Roderick, just like their mother did to their father in the opening of the show. And the House of Usher completely collapses, literally and figuratively. And we see that August Augustine, Augustine, the detective, may be poor, but he lived a much richer life because he is surrounded by his family. Money isn't everything. I just have to applaud the show for weaving in so many of these Edgar Allan Poe stories. The stuff regarding the healthcare industry and how many people are murdered by greed, along with the incredible foreshadowing at the beginning of the season. As I said, Madeline's heard banging in the basement and other stuff like that. I just wish we didn't know that everyone got murdered in the beginning, and I wish I could relate a little bit more to the characters before they were killed off, like in Flanagan's other work. But I think that's hard when most of them are downright evil. But a great way for Flanagan to go out at Netflix as he will now be moving over to Amazon Prime, a great finale to his tenure. And I just have to stay at the end here. I got to meet my Flanagan recently. He's an awesome stand-up dude, and so is his entire crew. Just really happy that a good person is making such great art and is being rewarded by huge million-dollar deals from Netflix and Amazon. Get that bag, Mike. Get it. <laughs> Last thing I got to review today is my Loki episode three. It is the best episode, oh, spoilers will follow, best episode so far this season, despite what I felt was a lacking Jonathan Majors performance. I really enjoyed this week's episode, and a lot of stuff happened that advanced the plot forward. That first season of Loki, episode three, was almost completely filler outside of, the establishing, outside of establishing love between Loki and Sylvie. Although the visual effects were cool when that purple planet was being destroyed and the buildings were falling down, that was so awesome. Those effects on that TV show kind of blew my mind. But I felt like it was very much filler. But along with The Mandalorian and Secret Invasion, I felt like we were guaranteed to get a filler episode every time a Disney Plus show was coming out. But after Ahsoka, and now that we are halfway through Season 2 of Loki, it feels like we won't have any filler here. And that gives me so much joy. That stood out to me and everyone this episode was Miss Minutes, who was totally crazy evil in her love for Kang, especially when she tried to get Ravona off. It's like she pushed him off the boat. I thought for a second that Miss Minutes was going to kill Ravona on that boat or throw her to her death or something like that, but she was much more peaceful than I had anticipated. The other standout to me was the character arc that Sylvie went on here. She and Loki literally ended up in the same situation they were at the end of season one with Loki protecting Victor, Victor timely while she tried to kill him to end all this madness before it can be started again. I was like, I just love that we're in that situation again. But then she learns that he has free will too. And by the end of the episode, and she's trusting him this once, but I think she might regret it. I, I think I hated the way he kept stumbling through his lines. But Sylvie, she learns that she gives people free will. And she said to herself that she shouldn't be killed for the actions of another version of her. And she would be a hypocrite if she did kill Victor Timely. I mean, I still want her to do it. But as I said, I hated the way Kang was stumbling through his lines. I wish they would have just stabbed him and they would have to rely on Miss Menace to solve the temporal loom issue. We could have done this all without him. Sticking with Jonathan Major's performance, I love the work he did at the end of Loki Season 1 and Ant-Man 3 as one of the bright spots in that whole movie, along with Michelle Pfeiffer, of course. But here, maybe the sexual assault allegations are clouding my vision, but I really felt the performance was over the top. And I understood how this character became He Who Remains in some version with that character's wacky tonal dialect. But here, it pissed me off more than anything. I feel like you understand where he was coming from at the end of that last last season because he's been alone by himself 
for eons. But here he's still surrounded by people, so I don't really understand the quirkiness. I think if they, I, I found like the extra five minutes of runtime versus last week's episode, and that's just him taking three minutes to say one sentence. I really just didn't like the role he played in this episode. And I feel like he's one of the dull spots of the season so far. I want a vibrant king, yes, but I want one that means business. He is not that. I was really hoping Sylvie would stab him, but that would go against her character, but still, stab him. Then we have Miss Minutes in relation to King. I knew when she was giving Ravona and him side-eye that she was meaning business this week. I love that, that the Chicago people thought she was a ghost, like they're calling her ghost clock or something like that. And then she got super huge, and that was cool. But her wanting to be in a real, real relationship with King was so creepy but made perfect sense. And he wouldn't make her a body. And I fully support that decision. I don't want to date an AI person unless that person is some form of vision. Because he's the only one, only sentient person I believe is his own human being. Outside of that, no, not happening. With Ravona, it seems like she wants her man back. But she doesn't get it here with Loki and Mobius taking him away from her after she threatened to kill him. I think she more wants a partnership. But I think she's still got a little love thing for him. Then they leave Ravona to be dealt with by Sylvie, which was a pretty ballsy thing to do, and I was hoping Sylvie would kill her too. Let's wipe the slate clean with all these characters. Let's just have Sulky, Sylvie, and Mobius. That's it. Oh, and OB. That's all we need. Everybody else can die. Let's just move on. <laughs> Where she put Ravona, I felt a far more interesting, and that was sticking her at the end of time to see who the He Who Remains corpse, and it was so dark and grotesque, and she was able to keep her tin pad, though. I thought Sylvie was going to strand her, but... It was just so cool seeing Kang's dead corpse there. Like, they actually showed it. But Miss Minutes and her make up over their hatred of Victor Timely. And Miss Minutes has a secret to tell Ravona right before the episode smash cuts to credits. As for Loki this episode, he really spends it running around trying to convince others to help him in Mobius, who's busy eating more food this episode. This time it's popcorn. And he's actually eating this time versus just picking out his food with the pie and the McDonald's last week. But I love when they visited that Norwegian god um, little stand at the festival and you see balder the brave that was the fun reference for the comic fans and you see thor and odin no loki though and they make fun of him for that but loki is finally able to convince victor timely to come with him back to the tva and for sylvie to move on he's very good at talking things out at this point victor timely is now on his way to the tva where he will learn all their secrets which i really don't think is a good idea we're gonna fall in the same trap again and i really think sylvie should have just killed him victor timely is on his way to open the blast doors to help save the tva at least temporarily and I just don't think that's the smartest idea to give that man access to all that power. And I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe they said that we saw him at Met, the big bad Kang, that we're going to see in Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars. But I don't know if it's this one. We'll see. Who knows? I kind of hope it's not this one if he keeps stuttering over his lines. Or maybe it's an act. I hope it's an act because he's driving me insane. Halfway through the season, and I really am loving the show again, just like with the first season. I hope they can get rid of that Awful King variant and get back to the more serious ones, and I can't wait for that tension to build. I'm glad we were back at the TVA for the next episode. I mean, I love a good 1980s world fair, but I want to be back in my comfort zone of 1970s decor offices with retro music playing in the background. That's what I look for in Loki, and it's delivered pretty so much so far, and I'm back, ready to be back. As for what's coming next week, we have Five Nights at Freddy, the movie coming out. So I'm not sure when I'm actually going to be able to watch this film, but hopefully going to make it time where I can review this out, get the review out for this next week. But I don't have the highest hopes for this film. I'm not a huge fan of Five Nights at Freddy's. I never really understood the fandom. I love the idea of creepy animatronics. I think that could be really serve a horror movie well. But besides the development hell that this movie has been in for over 10 years at this point, there's a few other things holding back for me. One is that the film is not rated R. And it's rather PG-13, which I hope doesn't shy away from the more horror-filled elements. When Blumhouse usually does PG-13 movies, I don't ever find them in the slightest bit scary. More importantly, the film is being released day and date on Peacock. And with most films that debut day and date on streaming, ser streaming services, 
it shows me studios do not have a lot of hope in them, which really worries me. Also, my sister says she won't see this film with me. She's the biggest Five Nights at Freddy's fan I know, and I'm really disappointing her that she won't be seeing this film with me. This makes me sad. So I'll get to the Five Nights at Freddy review. Make sure to check, come back next week. Five Nights at Freddy review, box office talk for Killers of the Flower Moon, Lucky Episode 4, so much stuff to be broken down. And then what did you guys think of this? What do you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? Please let me know. What do you think of Loki Episode 3? Box office or Taylor Swift. Make sure you follow me on all my social channels. And thank you guys so much for listening. Have a good night now.